Well, good morning. It's, excuse me, it's good to see everyone. Good to be here, to be with God's people, to open God's Word. This is where we need to look this morning. We don't need man's opinions. We don't need man's wisdom. We need God's Word. And I take you this morning to John chapter 1. Once again, we are continuing our study of this uh, gospel, a very important gospel. We have been going through these uh, opening verses John chapter 1, and we started out in verse 1, of course, and we saw that the Word, the Word, this expression of God, this sermon of God, actually, is Jesus Christ. You see that in verse 14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. This sermon of God, this one who is eternal, verse 1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word. We see that He is distinct from God in that the Word was with God. He's here and God the Father is here, so there's a distinction between them, and yet he's also equal to God. That basically is a great theological statement of the doctrine of the Trinity, right there. Jesus is God. The Word is God. The Word was with God, and the Word is God. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct, but God is one essence, but it's distinct in three persons. Verse 3, we're told that this word is the creator, and we spent much time talking about him as the agent of creation last week. All things were created through him, Paul says, and for him. He created it, he gets to inherit it. He is the creator of everything, and he created it out of nothing. There was nothing here. That makes his miracles easy to understand. They're no big deal when you can do that. We saw that he is self-existent in verse 4. In him was life. Nobody made him. He was life, and he's the giver of life. He's the source of life. He is the light of men. He is the Shekinah glory that shined in the darkness at creation. But he's also the one we're told down in Verse 9, the one who enlightens every man. He brings truth to every man. So there's two ways that metaphor could be applied there in creation. So last week it was God the creator, and today we move now to God incarnate. What do I mean by that? God became flesh. God took on flesh. To his deity, he added humanity. And that's what you see in the verses we will consider this morning. The creator coming in the flesh. The creator coming into his creation. Notice in verse 10. Here it is. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Verse 11, he came to his own in the world, God in flesh, and those who were his own did not receive him. There you have in those two verses, the light coming into the world, and the light is rejected. The light is rejected, verses 10 and 11. 
Then you see in verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And you can look at verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Those two verses will say our light received. So this morning it's light rejected, light received. God incarnate, he came into the world, rejected, received. This whole idea of God, Messiah, coming into the world as a man has some Old Testament roots. Let's look at Malachi 3 for a second. Turn to Malachi 3. Hold your hand in John 1. Flip back to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, the end of your Old Testament. Behold, it says in verse 1 of Malachi chapter 3, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. There's a forerunner. Name is John the Baptist, okay? We talked about John the Baptist in John 1. He testified about the light. And that's what he does, a messenger who would clear the way. And the Lord, verse 1 continues to say, whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. His temple. Whose temple is it? God's temple. The Lord whom you seek will come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. He's going to, John the Baptist or the forerunner will prepare the way for this God sent deliverer to his own temple. Verse 2 But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. It's going to be a purifying event when he comes. Flip back to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. Good luck finding it. Got to know your way around the Old Testament here, Jonah, Micah. Small, minor prophet, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, 5, 2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little, 5, 2, Micah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, for from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His going forths are from long ago, notice, from the days of eternity. In the beginning was the Word. He was there at the beginning. He's eternal. So his rule, going forth from long ago. Verse 4, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in, strength of the, in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. He's a God-sent deliverer, a God-sent God, a God-sent God. He will be great. His kingdom will spread out. His going forths are from eternity. We're not talking about a man here, okay? We're talking about the Word made flesh. Go to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. You're familiar with this, and 
passage, the context of this passage is, beginning in verse 1 and 2, Zebulun and Naphtali, uh, two tribes of Judah, along the Galilee of the Gentiles, speaking about one who is going to come because the people in darkness are going to see a great light. The people in those regions are going to see a great light. And who is going to be the one that is going to bring that light? On down to verse 6. For a child will be born to us. This is going to be a human. A son will be given to us. That speaks of his deity. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. Prince of Peace. This one who will be born to us, this one who will be given to us, will be mighty God, eternal Father. See, the, the, wor- the word is the word as the God sent God is what I'm looking at here this morning. The light coming to the world in human flesh. Look at verse 10, back to John chapter 1. Back to John chapter 1. This is the light rejected, these two verses. The light rejected. He was in the world. This God sent God was in the world. And the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came... As the source of all spiritual truth, he came to bring the truth, to enlighten every man as to what the truth was. He came into the darkness of this world. He came into the darkness of the hard hearts of sinful men. And they treated him like he did not belong. They ignored him. The world ignored him. They were too blinded by their own sin. They rejected him. They did not want light. Sinners reject the light because they love darkness. Sinners are like the roaches in your garage. When you turn on the light, they run. That is what sinners do. They love their sin and... They don't want the light because most sin is done in secret. Most sin is done uh, in the dark. I don't want to be interrupted. And he turns on the light and they want to turn it off. That's why people reject, folks. It's a sin issue. I don't want to be accountable for my sin. I don't want anybody come and talking to me about my sin and I need to repent of my sin. That's the issue. They're too blinded by their own sin. They can't see the light. They can't see it. They didn't understand it. They didn't comprehend it. John the Baptist came testifying about it. He came to say, he is the light. I'm the road sign. Don't, don't trust me, but trust him. He's the light. And the reason you've got to have somebody testify about light is because they're in darkness. They don't even know it. He says, you're in darkness. 
You would think there would be an attraction to their maker. You would think that there would be an attraction to this one who is the creator. You would think that's how the progression of John 1 would go. All of these glorious statements about who the word is. And then he, he takes on flesh and he comes into the world and he's rejected by the world. There's no enthusiastic embrace of him at all. And, and it gets worse. Verse 11, he even came to his own. He came to his own. And those who were his own did not receive him. The world in general rejected him, but in his, even his own. Who are we talking about? We're talking about the Jews. We're talking about descendants of Abraham. We're talking about those who he says in Amos, Amos chapter 3, verse 2, you only have I chosen among all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. The point is, these are God's people. These are God's chosen people. And it tells us here that he came to them and they did not receive him. And keep in mind, he did not come to them as an alien. He didn't come to them as looking as like some weird space creature or something. He came to his own. He lived among his own. He dressed like his own. He worked and sweated just like his own. He lived side by side. He ate with them. He fellowshiped with them. He did all kinds of things in his 30 years with them. He lived among them and dwelt among them. And you would think the natural progression would be that his own, his own, maybe, maybe not the world in general, but his own, they would not. They would not reject him, but it says they did not receive him. They're not attracted to him. He came as their brother. You know, initially there was some reception, if you recall, and we'll see this as we go through John, but for the most part it's rejection in the book of John. At the end, there's some more reception. But in the beginning, you have a little bit of reception. You have at the end of John chapter 1, reception by the disciples of John the Baptist. You have the wedding of Cana in chapter 2. You have Nicodemus in chapter 3. You have the Samaritans in chapter 4. They're relatively receptive. But when you get to chapter 5, you start seeing all the opposition. He makes himself equal to God. The religious leaders say, that is blasphemy. Verse chapter 6, he starts teaching about eating and drinking his blood. Figurative language about the total commitment required if you're going to follow me and be my disciple. And many left him. Chapter 7, not even his brothers were believing in him. Chapter 8, they want to stone him again. He starts talking about being alive even before Abraham. You get to chapter 11, they start to scheme his death. And chapter 19, they kill the Son of God. And it's all summed up back in John 1.11. And he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. This is their history, by the way. This has been their history. Isaiah 65, he says, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that did not call on my name. I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good. 
following, notice, their own thoughts. This is it. They follow their own thoughts. We have our idea of what the Messiah should look like and be like. He should be like us. We have our own God and what he should be like. We have created our God in our own image of what we want. Not that God. Not this God. In Jeremiah chapter 7, this is back continuing to think about their history. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent my servants, I have sent my prophets, I've sent them to you continuously, and you would not listen to them. You would not incline your ear to hear them. But you stiffened your neck, and you do more evil than even your fathers do. And by the time we get to the end of the Gospels, he has rejected that nation at least temporarily. And it opens the door for the Gentiles, Romans 11 tells us. Their rejection opened the door for the Gentiles. That's you and me. One day he will restore Israel. I believe that from Romans 11 and other places. And it's not that Jews aren't being saved now. They certainly are. But as a nation, there's this rejection. There's this hardening, we're told. So it's just shocking. It's shocking. You would think the progression would be your light has come, the one your prophet spoke of. The progression would be to embrace him, but they reject him. They reject the light. And that leads us to our next point. The light is received. The light is received. And I'll say this to you. This is the theme of John, by the way. Rejection and reception. There's, there's, really, there's no middle ground, folks. You can't be indifferent. To, to be indifferent is to reject him. You either are with him or you're against him. In John 12, 1, 12. This is and, and this is and this is interesting. You you see in those verses of rejection, and what you see here is God's gracious intervention so that the rejection is not universal. Follow me on that. Wow, is it just going to be a total rejection by all humanity? Wow, God, people are in darkness. People are in bondage to their sin. Is it just going to be a universal rejection of the light? And verses 12 and 13 say, God intervenes. God intervenes in that rejection. The light is received. Let's see how. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Verse 13, who were born. Question, how how do we get in? How do we get into the 
family of God. How? Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God intervenes. God intervenes because you know what? Everybody would reject if God did not intervene. No one seeks after God. No one. John 6.44, you don't have to turn there. We'll look at it later. But no one can come to me unless the Father who sent, him, sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. The power of God is he draws certain sinners to salvation. Stay with me. He draws certain sinners to salvation as many as received him. As many whose eyes he opened so they can be transformed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. God draws them. He's describing here in these two verses, rebirth. He is describing here being born again. He's talking here about internal transformation. He's talking here about being born from above. Being born from God. Listen, in short, we're all stillborn. We're all stillborn. Born dead. Spiritually speaking, we're all stillborn. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're dead. We must be reborn to be alive, to be made alive. We don't have a heartbeat in a spiritual sense, and it's going to take more than CPR to revive us. It's going to take... I need to climb back in the womb. Reborn. Spiritually speaking. You must be born of God to be saved, okay? You must be born of God to be saved. It's very important. You must be born from above to be saved. That's what these verses are teaching. Look at John 1, 12. But, small hinge here. Important hinge word to a glorious truth. This is not a universal rejection. But as many, Jew and Gentile, but as many as received him. Word received is to embrace, as it means to take hold, to grasp. Look at the last phrase, even to those who believe in his name. It's kind of a restating of that. It just uses different words. The last phrase says you must believe in his name. The first phrase says you must receive him. Receiving and believing are the same thing. This is the first time the word believe is mentioned in the Gospel of John, and yet it is a key word in the Gospel of John. The purpose of writing the book of John, John tells us in John chapter 20, I'm writing these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing in his name, you might have life. Key word, believing. Believing. Let me just talk about this word just for a moment. God sends forth his gospel for the purpose of saving people. John is writing this gospel for the, sa- for the purpose of saving people. People are going to be saved when the gospel is preached. 
His word does not return void. We read it, we preach it, whatever. God will use his word to bring people to salvation. We know that. And it's not just, this is interesting. I heard somebody say this. I thought this was a good point. It's not just unchurched people, but it's overchurched people as well. That's a term used by this particular individual anyway, talking about people in the South especially. People in the South who have gone to church their whole lives and they can't remember a single day when they weren't in church. But they're not saved. They think they are, but they're not. They say they have faith, but their faith many times is like a demon faith. What do I mean by that? James 2, a faith that does not save, a faith that knows all the facts, like a demon knows all the facts about Jesus. The demons, when they saw Jesus, oh, the, behold, the, the Son of God, they, the Mighty One of God, they, they knew who Jesus was. Demons are very orthodox. Ge- demons know their Bible. Demons believe in God. Demons believe in the Son of God. Demons believe in the salvation plan. Demons believe the Bible is true, that demons believe all of that. They're very orthodox. We came up with a term years ago, and you've heard me say this before, of easy believism. This was an effort by many people who were very sincere, who wanted their loved ones to come to Christ, and to do that, they would make the... the, the what the gospel preach or what the gospel message was, they'd make it easier than the demands of the gospel. They would make it easy as possible. Just ask Jesus in your heart. Just accept Jesus. And, And I'm not saying they were wrong. Those things are not wrong in themselves. But they don't communicate salvation truth. Because the Bible does not tell us to seek salvation like that. Pray a prayer or walk an aisle, and somehow that act will save you. It it resulted in very shallow evangelistic messages and approaches to bring people into the kingdom. And so there are a lot of people in the church today who think they're Christians and they're not. There's a survey that I read on Ligonier, Pastor J.D. Greer, was article he, he was doing, but this was a survey that he referred to. Surveys show that more than 50% of people in the United States have prayed a sinner's prayer. Think about that. 50% of the adults in the United States have prayed the sinner's prayer and think they're going to heaven because of it, even though there's no detectable difference in their lifestyles from those outside of the church. They prayed the sinner's prayer. You say, what is the sinner's prayer? It goes like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner and I ask for your your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins. I invite you to come into my heart and life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior in your name, amen. And I've heard pastors stand up and take people through that line by line. Listen, there's nothing wrong with that prayer. There's nothing wrong with that prayer. When my kids were growing up, I heard the older taking my younger through that prayer, getting mad at the younger because the younger wasn't saying the words right. 
And every time the younger would make a mistake, the older would inform them, we have to start over. (laughs) You've got to say this right. You've got to get these words right. All I could think about was the false converts in my back seat. (laughs) But you get the point. People have been saved by, sure, God uses that. I'm not saying that. But to say that just because you have prayed that prayer means that you are a Christian is wrong. To say that, I've heard people say that. I was there when they prayed that prayer. I heard them pray that prayer. It's used by lots of people. The sinner's prayer. Pray these words. Pray these words. And those people who, in the survey, they would admit they don't go to church. They don't read their Bible. And their lives look no different than their unsaved neighbors. It's clear, folks. We must believe. That is clear. We must believe. Look how the word is used in John chapter 2. And just, I'm not going to take you through every usage, but look at John chapter 2, for example, verse 23. Verse 23 says, But when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, John 2 23, many believed in his name. That sounds good. Observing his signs, which he was doing. They liked the miracles. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. You say you believe in me, I don't believe in you. I know what's in you. Who knows what the motivation was? More miracles? More wine? They just saw the wedding at Cana. Who knows? Do more signs. Go to 3.16. You see the word believe there. You know this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We know that verse very well. You must believe. Our human, there the process of believing is important. But notice in verse 36. He who believes in the son has eternal life. See that? He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey, your translation may also say believe, but it is a different word. He puts the word obey in there, uses another word for believe. Who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Very important. Believing is more than just accepting facts, it's more than just acknowledging facts. It's more than thinking that I've followed some formula and I've done the thing, I've walked the aisle, given money, or whatever you think. It's not that. It's believing, definitely. It's a belief that involves trust. Trust in His name. Look at uh, back at John 1.12. You believe in His name. His name, that's the name of Jesus. That's the 
Name is everything that you are. A name represents everything that you, about you, all the attributes of you. When I say your name, I think of you and what you are and what you're like and who you are and all of those things. I, I, that sums up you. Believing in His name. Uh, what does Colossians 2.9 say? At the name of Jesus, notice, every knee will bow. That's not demon faith right there. That's not demon belief right there that they would bow. Bow before Christ. You believe in someone's name. You take that name. The, a bride takes the, takes the name of the groom. She's identified now with this groom. A new name. There's a trust. There's a commitment that is much deeper than acknowledging some facts and just accepting some words and going through some actions. It's very important to believe, but it's important that it, what kind of belief it is matters. And what's the content and the, what that belief really is, what, it, what you mean when you say you believe. It's thrown around so loosely. It's not passive intellectual acceptance. It's, it's submitting our lives to Christ. It's, it's trusting in Christ. We should, we should bear a resemblance to our Father, right? Kids look like their parents. There should be some resemblance. When Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees in, in John, in John, <laughs> When he's rebuking the Pharisee, uh, Luke, Luke, he's rebuking the Pharisees, he says, you're not, things you're doing are not from God. You look more like your father, the devil. You follow me? You look like your father, the devil. You don't look like your father. We should look like our father. There should be some resemblance in us to our father. We... Sorry, that was John 8, 42. John 8, 42. But we should bear resemblance. I need to be born again. Now, that's where the next verse comes in. Nine minutes. Wow, nine minutes. Let's see if we can do this. Verse 13. This is the vine side. Listen, verse 12, you can put, put in your Bible. is simply the human side of it, the believing. That's the process. I have to go through that. But verse 13 is the reason I can do verse 12. Because this is the divine side. This is what God does to make verse 12 possible. For me who is dark in my sin and dead in my sin, to believe, to embrace, to submit to, to view Christ as lovely and desirable is because of what happens in verse 13. Verse 13, you were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born from above. Born from above. You see this in John 3, 1 through 7, don't you? Turn, just flip over there. Flip over there. This is the scene of Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is talking to Christ. We know that you're a man from God. We know that you, nobody could do these things unless God was with him. Then Jesus jumps right into the issue in verse 3 and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born from above. 
or you will not see the kingdom of God. I don't care how many times you prayed the sinner's prayer. That doesn't matter. I don't care how many aisles you walked. I don't care how many Bible studies you led. I don't care how many church days of a perfect attendance you had at church. You must be born from above. You must have had God give life to your dead soul. Nicodemus talks about getting back in the womb. And in verse 5, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Notice he says it does not happen. Back to John 1, 13. It does not happen by blood Blood is plural, blood is bloods, okay? Not by bloods. Makes sense when you think of the context to the ancient world where they thought birth and conception brought together bloods. You follow me? Brought together bloods. Blood of the mother and the father and all of their ancestors. I mean, there's a lot of bloods in that birth, that child that's going to be born. Different nations and tribes are in that womb from two lives, the mother and the father, and their contribution. John says, that is not how children of God are produced, though. That is not how a child of God is produced. A child of God is not produced by bloods. A human child, yes, but not a child of God. You cannot look at your lineage and say, oh, my mother and father attended church every week and they took me to church all the time and I cannot remember a Sunday when I was not there and I I can say all of those things about my family and good things. They maybe helped start the church and they were pillars in the church and my dad was a deacon and da-da-da-da-da-da, all and on. You're not... Born, uh, born from above by bloods. People think that. I, I've always been a Christian. I was born in a Christian home. That is not true. You're not a Christian because you were born physically. Everybody on earth is not a child of God in this sense. We're a child of God in the sense that he created us, yes, but not in the sense of salvation. To be a child of God is to be born of God. Secondly, he says, nor the will of the flesh, and I'm going to combine, nor the will of man. There's no human contribution. There's no blood contribution. There's no human contribution to this. It takes God and God alone for a dead sinner to come alive. Understand this. We're dead in our sins and we cannot bring ourselves to life. Only God can do that. It's God's work. And so John is setting up the fact that divine predominance here when it comes to salvation and rebirth. We go through a real process of believing, yes. It's a real process. 
and we hear and believe the gospel. That's a very real process. Lydia in Acts 16, she heard Paul speaking, and what happens? God opens her heart. Romans 9, 16, so then it depends not on man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. God is the cause. If you're sitting here this morning and you're truly a Christian, it's because God started it. God initiated it, not you. It may have looked like that to you, but it wasn't you. God did that. God did that. He is the source. He is the origin of it all. And he is the one that brings you to where you can believe and trust. He is the one that brings you to repentance. He is the one that makes Christ attractive. He is the one that convicts you of your sin. He is the one that points to your need for a Savior. He does all of that. You don't do that yourself. You think you're okay. I think I'm okay. Turn to John 6 and we'll close with this this morning. John 6. You see it in John 6 again. It must be of God. John 6, verse 40. He says in John 6, 40, for this is the will of my Father. John 6, verse 40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Now, is that a human will or is that a choice? Look at verse 44. Because you see it in verse 44. But no one can come to me. This is four verses later. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. See, divine intervention is necessary for believing. It's like a magnetic attraction, metal to a magnet. That's the attraction. He draws He drags. It's an irresistible grace. You can't resist it. When God does that work to you, He brings you all the way. He brings you all the way. Verse 37. The Father, notice verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Listen, if you've been given to the Son by the Father, in eternity past, if you have been given to the Son by the Father, you will come. You will come. He will not let you go. Verse 65, notice how it results in salvation And he was saying, for this reason I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. It's a God-granted salvation. Belief and rebirth are God-worked. Understand this, they're God-worked events. He is sovereign over all of it. The drawing of it and the keeping you in it, it's all of God. It's, it's like 1 Peter 1.3. God caused us to be born again. That's 1 Peter 1.3. James 1.18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the will of truth. 1 Corinthians 1.30. It's by his doing that you were in Christ Jesus. And you know why? Because no one can boast. I cannot say, oh, I opened my own eyes and I saw the truth. 
I gave Jesus a chance. I gave Jesus a try. It's what, look what I did. Look where I am. No, there's no way you can ever boast. All you can look up and say, God, you had mercy on me. I'm an unworthy sinner, and you saved me. You opened my eyes. I was just like the rejectors of 10 and 11. And you intervened. You intervened and drew me to yourself that I might repent and believe the gospel. Folks, that's the gospel. If you're sitting here this morning and you don't know Christ, you say, well, what do I do? What do I do if I've got to wait for that thing to happen? Yes. Cry out to God. If you've looked at these verses this morning and you say, I want that to happen in my life, man, you're on your way. Cry out to him to do that work in you, to birth you from above, to take your stillborn heart and bring it to life that you might believe in the Son of God and have life, as John says. Thank you, Father, for our time today. Thank you, God, for the truth that we have looked at together this morning. We love you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.